It's good to gather, isn't it, on the Lord's Day? It's good to hear from Chris. We should probably hear from Chris more often uh, as he just shares some of the heart of the elders as we meet often twice a month, sometimes, well, always once a month, but sometimes twice a month. And uh, we do go over so many issues that um, we are dealing with and that the congregation uh, is dealing with. Uh, we have a membership class that is coming up on Monday, that's tomorrow, and we already have a good number of people, but there's still room for more. So if you're interested at all in that, um, you can go online. Uh, coming to the class doesn't obligate you, it just informs you, and so you can be part of that if you'd like. And then we're also planning a baptism for uh, February the 13th, and we're thinking of doing a, a special service in the evening that would be um, a combination of baptism and missions updates and worship together. So if you're interested in baptism, we do need to know sooner than later because there's a little booklet that we would ask you to fill out and then we get together with the elders of the church, a couple of them, and we just go through your testimony and your statement of faith and, and then go from there. So if that's something you are interested in, there's a little booklet in the corner of the, this room. There's a little stand and there's a baptism booklet on that stand and it's something that you can work through uh, in preparation for that. If you have your Bibles, take them and open them up. Uh, if you can find Second Kings, it's uh, probably about a third of the way into your Bibles, um, starting at the front. And we have been working our way through the book of Second Kings, and, and probably more particularly how it relates to Elisha uh, and some of the events that are around uh, Elisha's life. And uh, as you're turning there, I thought there's one more thing that I would like to draw your attention to. Uh, I just saw the note here on my text. Um, some of you know, many of you may know that on uh, Sunday night, last Sunday night, uh, Rudy Berg passed away. And uh, that is just a loss um, for so many. Uh, he was a dear brother in Christ. He served among our elders here at the church. He was the initial individual that opened up the administration position here at our church. Just a good friend, uh, loving husband and father. So pray for uh, Corinne and the three boys and their spouses and grandkids. Just because of the times that we're in, um, it's just probably not the wisest thing to have a funeral service. And so that has been left to the family to do on their own. Uh, sometime in the summer. So as a congregation, there won't be an opportunity for us to gather, um, at least uh, in specific ways to uh, remember Rudy. But uh, keep them in your prayers that God may sustain them as they walk down this road now together. Second Kings uh, chapter 6. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered them, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered them, I will go. So he went with them and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Well, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand, and he took it. I want to kind of get to this text a long way around. Um, so I hope you can follow me as we get there because I believe the text tells us about God. One of the things that 
I think we need to wrestle with and conclude in our hearts is, has God revealed himself to all mankind? I was going out into my study, as I often do on Monday mornings, and as I walked into my study, I noticed a little book that was on the floor of my study, and I thought, oh, I should just read this as I'm getting ready for my day. And the book, oddly enough, was called Behold Your God, the song that we just sang now. And I opened it up, and the first chapter in the book was entitled, Is There Such a Thing as an Atheist? And I was fascinated by that. And as I read through the chapter, it became very clear very quickly that his conclusion was absolutely not. There is no such thing as an atheist. He writes in a couple sentences, the Bible never, anywhere, tries to prove the existence of God. Have you found that when you've read the Bible? Nowhere does it try to prove the existence of God. Rather, it simply assumes that God exists. In the beginning, God. doesn't try and prove it. It just assumes that God exists and that humankind knows he exists. That in itself is a fascinating statement because what he's getting at is he said, God has revealed himself in such a way that there is no single human on this earth who has not seen the revelation of God. So as I thought about that, I thought about uh, some various scriptures that maybe we could turn to that maybe bear this out. And one of them is in the book of Acts. Um, some of you know Luke wrote the book of Acts. And uh, there's an instance where he is talking about the spread of the gospel through uh, the, the known world at that time. And he describes this instance where Paul is in the city of Athens. He's waiting there for Silas and Timothy to come along and uh, join him. And then he was going to keep going from there. But while he's there, he's walking around the town and he sees a bunch of uh, people gathering on a hill. And so he goes up and he joins them and they're having these spiritual conversations together. And when it's Paul's turn to speak, he doesn't set out to defend the fact that there is a God, the God of Israel. He simply begins to declare to them some truths about that God. He tells them that there is a God who is the creator of all the world. Where does this world come from? He says, God made it. And then he says um, something about that God. He says, well, that God doesn't need you. That God is self um, Existent, and he provides all that he has for himself. He doesn't need us for anything. And rather than him being dependent on us, we are dependent upon him. And furthermore, he says, and there's going to be a judgment. That God is going to judge us at the end of this age. In other words, Paul states to them questions that every one of us ask. Where do I come from? Where am I going? Why is there morality? Where do I get meaning in life? All of that is encapsulated in his declaration of this God that exists. I, was just, I just read, um, fascinating enough, a book by Dan Brown. He's not my favorite author in the world, but I read him because it was another book that I happened to be reading that referenced him. I thought I should read it. It's a novel, his novel called Origins. And the book is, uh, Dan Brown doesn't like religion at all. Um, not just Christian religion, any kind of religion. And the premise of his book is simply that uh, men and women for years and years since the existence of human beings have been trying to answer two questions. Where do I come from and what happens when I die? And he basically mocks the Christian answer to that and explanation for that. And his answer to where do I come from and what happens to me when I die is to be found in artificial intelligence. Strange. It makes sense um, if you read the book. But the point of me mentioning that is simply that all humanity wrestles with those questions. 
Where do I come from? And where do I go when I die? So Paul addresses that on Mars Hill. Then we can turn to the book of Romans, for instance, Romans chapter one. And there we find Paul speaking again. And he tells us there how God has revealed himself to every single human being. He says, what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. And some of you might say, well, no, that's not true. I don't really know God. He hasn't shown me anything. I happened to be in the coffee shop yesterday and I had a book with me. And uh, a fairly elderly gentleman, he was leaving a table that I wanted, so I just stood there and he looked at me. He says, what's that book you're reading? And so I showed him the title and um, it was God. And I can't remember the rest of the title. Great book. And he says to me, have you seen him? And I said, yes, I actually have seen him. He says, I don't believe in that stuff. The, The fact of the matter is, though, that even to that gentleman, God has revealed himself, whether he admits it or not. Because Paul says, from the creation of the world, from the very start of this world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen and understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Do you understand what Paul is saying there? He's saying, when you drove here today and you looked around you, you saw evidence of God. God has revealed himself to you. When you opened your curtains and looked out into your garden or when you watched the birds come to your feeder or you looked up into the mountains or last night you went for a walk and you gazed up into the stars and you saw the moon or whatever else might you've been able to see, God was making himself known to you. This is what the psalmist declares when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. What we see in creation around us speaks of God. And we think about today, this is even more profound in the world in which we live today. Some of you be aware that we just sent up into space, or not we, but somebody down in the States, a $10 billion telescope so that it could look even farther and more clearly into our universe. And what will they see? More evidence of God and his glory, and his existence. And we've got microscopes now that are, I think they're called electron microscopes, and I bet we've even got more powerful microscopes than that now, that zero in on some of the smallest parts of creation. And what will they see there? God revealing himself to them. We can see aspects of the revelation of God today that men and women 100 years ago could never imagine getting glimpses of. And what does Paul say about our drive here or about our look through a telescope or a microscope? That we see God and we are without excuse. God exists. But God has also revealed himself in our world. Not just showing us, but he has acted in our world. He created this world. He he destroyed this world with a flood. He talks about the exodus. We see the rise and fall of kingdoms all around us. We experience as individual human beings the sovereign providential work of God. We ought to very often, always in our life, replace a phrase like we might say, that was lucky, with a phrase, that was God. A near-miss driving, a near-miss hiking, a near-miss boating. It's not lucky. It's God guiding and directing and superintending our world. 
God's goodness is experienced by all he has created. He did not leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Where does your food come from? It comes from fields and orchards and gardens and greenhouses. And how does that get watered? It waters, it's watered by God of heaven who sends rain upon this earth or gives us the ability to make systems that transport water. God is the one who gives us everything that we eat and enjoy. Jesus noted the same, reminding us that God shows his love for his enemies by making his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sending rain on the just and the unjust. God has made himself known. His evidence is all around us. And then finally and fully, we see the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus, who was the fullness of God in bodily form. The point that I'm trying to make simply is, and I agree with the author, there is no such thing as an atheist. There are those who deny that God exists, but there is no atheist in the sense that God has revealed himself to every human being. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly understood through what he has made. Don't you ever look to the skies and say, I wonder where they came from. I wonder who made them. Or you look at a fish or you look at a dog or you look at a tree and you wonder, where did that come from? We've been saying for years here, God is real. And that changes everything. The question then becomes, I believe, not does God exist, but rather what weight do you give to God in your life? That's a really important question to ask. The Americans have on their dollar bills, in God we trust but they give no weight to that God whom they declare that they trust in. So what weight do you give to God in your life? Do you live as though he exists? Do you live as though he guides and directs your life? Do you live as though he wants you to pattern your life in a certain direction? We know that he exists. We are all without excuse. So what weight do you give to his existence in your life? Does your knowledge of him change your behavior or influence the way that you do or see things? So again, what does this have to do with us this morning? I said we're coming the long way around to this text about the axe head that floats. Well, just as God has revealed himself to what he, in, in what he has made and through the person of Jesus Christ and his intervention in history and his provision of reigns and, and, and all of those kinds of things, but God has revealed himself in his written word, the Bible. The Bible is another place in which we learn um, intimately more about God's character and God's way with us and his plan of salvation. The Bible is fundamentally a revelation of God to us. It's an autobiography of God, so to speak. It's God telling us what we need to know about him to have life and to have salvation and to understand why he has done things the way that he has done them. And so every time we come to the scriptures, we come to the scriptures and read about God. So when I came to this text, I confess that when I opened it up on Monday, I didn't start there. And I got frustrated. And I kept reading it and rereading it, and I couldn't make sense of it. Or I could make sense of it, was it but it wasn't satisfying 
to me as I worked it through. And I had forgotten one of my own principles when I come to the Bible, both in my own reading and as I think about preaching, is what does this text say about God? When you're not looking for God in the Bible, you can end up in some very, very strange places. For instance, this text. Some have interpreted it allegorically. And so what they say is actually meant in this text is that here we see an instance for uh, where it's describing sinners. And we sinners have been cast into the Jordan Wimmer and are helpless and are in need of salvation. And that the tree that was thrown into the river is actually Christ and his cross and, and that he died for us and that he's rescued us and lifted us out of our judgment. And that's how they understand this text. That's what they believe this text is meaning. We're having a baptism service that I've just described to you a little bit earlier. And I could go to this text and say, well, this text is an illustration of baptism because it describes as we who are hard-hearted and, and, and metallic in our thinking are dropped into the river and there's a transformation that takes place and we come out and we're different. Well, the ax was still the same, but God just made it float. But you see where allegory takes you. It takes you into a world of just going nowhere. Well, then I read some who tried to rationalize the story. These are ones who come to a story like this and they, they don't want to find God anywhere in it. And so they will say, and they did say, and they do say that, well, what happened is Elisha uh, cut off a, a fairly substantial branch and he started poking around in the Jordan River until he accidentally or somehow poked it into the axe head and lifted it up and voila, axe head retrieved. And if that wasn't satisfying, then what he actually did was he, he could see it because it was a clear flowing river, which we know it's not, but he could see it. And he just dragged the ax head closer and closer to the shore until finally the servant could reach in and grab the ax head. That's a rationalistic approach to scripture. Or there's, I think, one that probably Christians fall into more than ever, and that's the principalization of scripture. We're looking for principles that will help us or guide our life. So what lessons can we learn then if we principalize this text? Don't cut down trees near a body of water. Be careful when you borrow another person's tools. As leaders, we ought to emulate Elisha who did not stand aloof from his followers but was found with them. You need to keep your tools in good shape. Uh, you should be careful about using volunteers because you often get what you pay for. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm not making this stuff up. This is a me-centered approach to Scripture. We're looking for it, not for what God is telling us about himself, but how can I take this Scripture somehow and make it fit my world and my life? So why this random story? Doesn't it seem kind of random? Of all the things that God was doing in the world, he gets his author to insert this story into this place about a couple of guys that go down a river, chop down a tree, and he loses his accent. And I was flustered with it. And part of my flustering is, is being honest, I came to this text and my concern was, first of all, how can I preach it? 
which is an awful way to approach Scripture. It's not about me coming up with a fancy way of saying stuffing or preaching a text. It's like God chastised me and said, Paul, it's not even about how can I preach this text. But Paul, what is this text telling you about me? And so that's after about an hour and a half of wrestling how I settled down on Monday morning to look at this text. So the details of the story are easy enough, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's pretty plain what's going on here. Elisha's got a supervisory role over a group of the sons of prophets. There are likely three of these groups at least, one in Bethel, one in Jericho, one in Gilgal. And uh, there's no really hint of complaint amongst these guys. Simply, they just realize that maybe their little troop is growing and they're outgrowing the particular building that they meet in or they live in and they need to make a new one. And so they say, well, can we go down to the Jordan River and uh, hack down a bunch of logs so that we can make a new place for us to live? And off they go, tools in hand to the Jordan River with their master. And so a question that I was asking myself then as I was finally on the right path was, does God ever intervene in life? I thought, well, how does God intervene in our lives? Is, is God involved in our lives, but he's kind of like a coach that sits on the sidelines? Is his concerns about the big issues of the world to give us the impression that he's really largely unconcerned about my life? Do we actually believe that God made this world and established a moral order and everything in it, but he doesn't actually intervene in my day-to-day -day life? So these are just some ways that I came to land with great joy thinking about God. God's concern for the daily needs of his own. This is the fourth instance in the book of Kings in which God works through Elisha to meet the pressing needs of his people, his people, his covenant people. God, through Elijah, is behind the provision of the oil that the lady needed to provide to pay for her debts and then live on. God was behind the edible stew of his prophets that was at first poisonous and then became edible. God was behind the circumstance when there was a group of 100 men gathered around and they were starving and they had nothing to eat. And God provided them food. And now here is one of his covenant children who has gone to cut down a tree and he's lost his axe head in the river. I'm not sure how to impress this upon us other than to simply say God cares about your day-to-day -day life. He cares about the stuff that makes up your daily, mundane life. Don't worry about that. We read again and again in the Bible, particularly in Matthew chapter 6. Be anxious for nothing. Not be anxious for a few things, but no, be anxious for nothing. And instead, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you. All the material needs that you have, all the things that concern you, God will look after his own way. Seek him first. Set your focus on living for him and serving him. And I wonder if we go through our days sometimes, I, I think I sometimes do, thinking that maybe God isn't aware of or he's not really concerned with the day-to-day -day needs that I have or that we have. 
And we tell ourselves, well, I got this under control. You know, I, I can deal with this. It's a bit of a frustration. It's a bit of a hassle, but I'll get through it. You know, and I, I'm, I'm quite self-sufficient. I guess I'll sort this out. I think this is the prophet's approach to losing his accent. He just reports it rather matter-of-factly to Elisha. It seems more out of desperation rather than seeking his help. It seems more of a, a declaration of fact than a request of faith. And I think if something's gone terribly wrong in your day, but it might be something that you don't think um, uh, um, warrants being put on the prayer chain or something like that, you just kind of tell somebody, man, I really had a bad day. I lost my wallet today. Kind of just declaring a fact as opposed to, you know, I, I lost my wallet and everything's in it. I need God to help me find my wallet. Different perspective on how we look at the day-to-day -day concerns that we face. What happens when we're at our wit's end? Do we tell people or do we tell ourselves with a conviction that God cares about the tiny details of my life? Does God care about an axe head that flew off its handle and landed in the Jordan River? Absolutely, he does. And everything with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. I was thinking then about God's power over the world he has made. This past week, uh, and I've been thinking about this, I, I, I can't, I, I find this everywhere. No, I often find this when I turn to people praying in the scripture. And this last week was no different. I was happened to be in Nehemiah chapter 9. And the basis of their prayer as they come before God, the basis of their prayer, they are commanded, stand up. Praise Yahweh, who is God from everlasting to everlasting. Praise your glorious name. May he be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Yahweh. You created the heavens and the highest heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly hosts worship you. Do you not believe that God made the water that flowed in the Jordan River? That God made the elements and the iron ore that were under great heat formed into iron? That God who created the laws that determine the property of water and the properties of iron can overrule those? It doesn't, just, it doesn't really much matter to me whether Elijah cut down a, a branch or a tree. In fact, it really doesn't much matter to me that he chose a piece of wood to locate the sunken axe head. What matters to me is the result of his actions show me about God, that God is able to make an axe head float. God can direct the wind and the waves. God can make a donkey speak coherently. God can send a great fish to swallow up one of his disobedient servants. God can put a coin in the mouth of a fish to pay taxes. God can put fear into the hearts of a massive army who is besieging his city and turn them away because of that fear. And God can make iron float. Nothing is impossible with God. What about God's care about the little personal details of your life? We're reminded of this again and again and again in Scripture. Jesus tells us that God knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. 
don't just think of that as a random, really nothing saying. No, God is aware when a sparrow falls to the ground. It's his sparrow. He made it. God clothes the lilies of the field, which are so beautiful, and they're here today and gone tomorrow. God can cause a plant to grow. God can send a worm to eat that plant. God knows uh, if your meal is inedible. God knows if your husband has died, leaving you and your family in a precarious situation. God knows if a group of you are sitting down and you haven't eaten for a while and you need something to eat. God knows if you have lost a borrowed tool and it's now at the bottom of the Jordan River. He cares about these details of our life. Nothing is too small for God. And then God's providence in the people that are part of your day-to-day life. Notice they, they just matter-of-factly, one of them said to Elisha, please come with your servants. Elisha could have stayed home and just said, yeah, you guys have a good day. Um, you know, I've got some work to do here. I've got some praying and some scrolls to write and whatnot. I don't know what prophets did. Um, but one of the guys said, Elisha, would you come along with us? They had no idea that they would lose an accident in the Jordan River. But God did. It was no accident that Elisha was with those men as they went down to the Jordan River. Loved ones, I believe that is true of our day-to-day lives. I believe that God knows everyone who is going to cross your path in any given day. God knows whether that person will help you or hurt you. God knows whether that person can help you or hurt you. That person may be the means of resources that you need to solve a problem that you're facing that day. It's not by accident that people come across our paths in any given 24-hour period. Do we not believe that God is sovereign over this world? Do we not believe that God guides and directs the steps of his people? And not of just his people, but of every person that he has created. And maybe think about that as yourself. Maybe, just maybe, you are the person that God has placed in proximity to a person that needs you that day. Your wisdom, a silent prayer, a piece of advice. If you want to see this worked out, take 20 minutes, 30 minutes today and read the book of Esther again. God is not mentioned once in that book. But God's presence is everywhere in that book, guiding and directing the circumstances and people that appear and disappear and show up and speak and don't, don't speak. Loved ones, God guides and controls everything in this world and is able to supply everything you need to face any trial you might face in any given day. And there's God's involvement in the world. I hope you've maybe gone back and read the book of Second Kings or you've got some of the things that we've talked about storing up in your mind. Just to remind you that God moves easily. It's fascinating. God moves easily between the personal events of individual, even no-named people, and grand geopolitical happenings. In this few short chapters already, what we see is that there, our God, the God who has revealed himself to us, is dealing with nations and armies and wars and 
victories and defeats. And at the same time, he's dealing with the individual needs of people, many of them who are unnamed. That God knows and guides and directs and is interested in those who we might say are incredibly significant. And then of those who we might say, and maybe we'd include ourselves in there, who are insignificant. And God deals with the people of Israel and he deals with the Gentiles, Naaman, for instance. Can we be bent maybe to see in this text and its context that God cares about all spheres of life equally? Can it be that God wants us to see and understand that his power is displayed in every corner of this world? In the big events that take place and in the little day-to-day events of our lives. I really think it is, loved ones, and I needed to be reminded, and I, maybe some of you need to be reminded that God is not too busy to care about your daily needs. God is not limited by the number of spheres over which he can rule at any given time. God's sovereign providential care is just, just as much a part of your life day to day as it is a part of the movers and shakers of this world, whoever they might be. I was thinking, can we even come close to knowing all the things God was juggling? And I say that respectfully. But all the things God was juggling as that little band of men went down to the Jordan River to cut down a few trees and one of them lost his axe head. At that very moment, God was guiding and directing the lives of millions of other people. He was guiding and directing the comings and the goings of kings of Israel and kings of the nations around him. This is just sort of one minute snapshot of the intimacy in the detail of God's care over our lives. Loved ones, do you know that God knows what is said and done and planned in the offices of Dr. Bonnie Henry or the premier of this province or the prime minister of our country or of President Putin or of John Kerry? Pick your name. And while they make plans, God's decrees will never be thwarted by those plans. His decrees will always be accomplished. In secret meetings that take place in dark places in our world, God is overruling them. God is guiding them and God is directing them. And in what you will deal with when you go home today, God cares about and will guide and direct and provide for you. The ministry staff here at the church uh, has started reading a little book. I think I mentioned this last week. It's a book by Alistair Begg called Brave by Faith. And there's a reason that we've chosen to look through this book because we are asking ourselves, we have for the last couple of years, God, what is your path for us as a church? I never want to make decisions based on who will, who will who, the most people that will make happy or the least people that will make happy. Frankly, while I'm aware, I'm, I'm not terribly concerned about who gets the benefit of a decision we make, as long as it 
is to the best of our ability a decision that best glorifies God. Amen. And so why, why the book of Daniel? Well, because Daniel is a book where the world of the Israelites was absolutely turned upside down in every imaginable way. And from the point of view from the people of God, if we're honest and we look at it, it would be easy for them to look and say, the world is falling apart. One has described the events that are described in the book of Daniel and what happened to the people of Israel as the most traumatic event in the whole of Old Testament history. I don't know if we can put ourselves in that situation and realize what it would have been like for the people of God to absolutely be crushed by Nebuchadnezzar. Killed, taken into slavery for 70 years. And he goes on to write that the awful horror of this is memorialized in the sobbing poetry of Lamentations. Why did this all happen, you say? Why did this all happen to, to the people of Israel? Well, verses 1 and 2 of Daniel tell us, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The sovereignty of God. The providence of God. It would be difficult, I think, for us if we were in the people of Judah's shoes to not ask, God, what are you doing? How could you, God? Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned us? Why have you left us alone? What kind of a God are you that you would do this to us? Again, it seemed that history was out of control and worst, it appeared that God had met his match in Nebuchadnezzar. It seemed as one wrote, that an enormous chasm had opened up between their faith on the one hand and world events on the other. That is a great statement. How are you doing right now? Is there a chasm in your heart between your faith and what is going on in our world right now? And so they came to the final crunch questions. Is God really still in control? When catastrophe strikes, is God still sovereign? Are we able to expect, accept God's freedom to act as he chooses, even when he does something that contradicts or seems to contradict his own purposes, or at least something that runs right against what we thought was his will? These are not just the wrestlings of the ancient Israelites, loved ones. These are the wrestlings of you and I today. God, what are you up to? God, why this and not that? The book of Daniel's, like the book of our lives, is filled with just these sorts of contradictions between faith and fact. Why we chose the book of Daniel is because the book of Daniel shows how a few young men managed to live through such mysterious providence and not only survive, but to thrive and to live in a way that their faith sustained them and strengthened them and their lives glorified God, even in a world that seemed out of control. This is what this little incident of the lost acts shows me about God. It begins to remind me of who God is, his power, his might, his control, his influence, his providence in our lives. If you know God, what weight are you giving him in your life today? In your fears, in your anxieties, 
in the choices that you have to make? What weight are you giving to God? And if you've set your mind against God, would that you could have him for your God. Would that you could know this God that the Bible describes. You can. You can acknowledge that he exists and you can begin to say, God, I want to know you more. There is no God like him. Father, we come before you today. Thankful for your word again. Thank you, Father, that you continue to reveal yourself to us. And what a revelation it is. There really is no God like you. And as we have said so often here, you exist and that changes everything. And I suspect that the more weight that we give to your existence, the greater the change is in our lives. Thank you, Father, for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you, God, for not leaving us in our blindness, but for making yourself known both in the world around us and in the word that you have given us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.